Thank you for listening to a Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, there's something I am certain of during this season of life, really all seasons of life, and it's this. I need to hear from God. And something I'm certain of for you as well is that you need to hear from God. Amen. And what I know, not just something I believe, what I know to be absolutely true, whether people agree with this or not, is that the words of God are found in the pages of the scriptures. And so when we hear the scriptures today, we are going to hear God speak. And we're going to get a word for due season. We're going to get a word from the Lord today that's going to be helpful for us, that's going to be encouraging to us, that's going to be challenging to us, and it's going to be good for those who listen in, in the neighborhood, if they can hear. God is going to speak, and we are going to listen. We're going to respond. So I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's help, and we're going to be back in Romans today. We're going to be in Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 21. The sermon title today is Christ Work Through Me. Christ's Work Through Me. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help. Lord Jesus, we need wisdom. We need to hear from you today. And we are certain as we hear from the pages of the Bible that you're speaking. This is your speaking voice. We know that you're not silent. We know that you have spoken. And we know that you're going to lead us today. These are things that we just don't believe, that we know. We absolutely know them to be true. And they are true. They're a matter of fact that you're a speaking God, and we can hear you through the pages of your book. We thank you that you've not left us alone during this season. Holy Spirit, thank you for empowering us. Thank you for helping us to love people, to give us peace, to give us joy, to help us see the needs of our neighbors and friends. Lord, continue to do that. Speak today. God, I pray for each person here. You have the ability to take a sermon that's preached from a passage And you have ability to to perfectly use what I imperfectly preach in the life of each person here. So each person here sitting in the car, each child here, God, I pray that you would impact them in the way they need to be impacted today. Encourage us with the truth of the gospel. I trust that you're going to help us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, let's hear from the Lord from Romans chapter 15, verse 14 to 21. Let me read it. You can follow along with me in your Bible if you want. Or if you can listen in. If you're tuning in on live, I want to thank you for joining us again. Uh, Please share this. As stated in the last few weeks, if you share this and this goes out to more people, then maybe through it being shared and somebody watching it on their stream, maybe they hear the gospel and their life has changed today. We want people to know Jesus during this time. We know that that's what God is up to. He is bringing people to himself in any and every season. And we know in this season right now that God is using this to bring people to himself. And so we're praying and asking that as people are thinking about life and death, as they're thinking about the big questions of life, even as they're tuning in online, we're asking that the Holy Spirit bring their heart alive and that that, that people would meet Jesus. And so please share this if you're watching it. Let's go ahead and hear from God. Romans 15, again, 14 down through 21. This is the word of the Lord. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God that was given to me 
to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will, venture, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Elycrium, I have, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has been already named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the word of the Lord. Now, one of the things we're doing in the book of Romans today is we're making another transition. We've been transitioning through this book through the doctrinal points that have been made. And so we, we see a pretty distinct dis uh, transition from chapters 1 through 3, and then 4 through 8, and then uh, and then 9 through 11, and then 12 through the end of the book. But we could also do not just a doctrinal break here, we could also do um, another kind of transition in this book. And so we could, we could say that the first part of this book was theological, the second part of this book was transitional, uh, like in the tra it turns into practical, so practical application, but then we could say we, we kind of step into a third category today, a category of, of personal. This is, this is very personal, we're getting into with the Apostle Paul, where Paul is going to speak from his heart about what's going on in his internal world, and then he's going to talk to people within the church on a very personal level, and even though he's never been to the church in Rome yet, He's speaking in a very personal way because he knows many people who are converted outside of the city of Rome and that ended up in the church of Rome. And so he's going to start writing in a personal manner. And we're going to get into the personal world of the Apostle Paul today. And he's going to speak very honestly. He spoke very honestly in chapter 9. He's spoken honestly in other chapters. It's not like he's not been personal in other chapters. But he's getting very specifically personal today. And he's going to talk about his internal life. And he's also going to be talking about his thoughts about the church. And I think it's going to be very, very profound. So we're today talking about the personal life of Paul. And we're going to see the work of Christ through the apostle. Okay? So look at verse 14, and we're going to see what Paul is satisfied about. When we think about words like satisfied or joy, things like that give us insight. Words like that give us insight into the internal world of people. And we get to see that in Paul today. Here's what he says. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. When Paul thinks about this church, the church in Rome, he is satisfied. He's satisfied. He sits back and he thinks about Rome, sips his cup of coffee, and he, he thinks about the brothers and sisters who are in this, this large, massive, global, urban center, and his heart is satisfied. And he tells us why his heart is satisfied. His heart is satisfied because the church in Rome is filled with all knowledge and they're able to instruct one another. So this church is a theologically rigorous church. They understand the Bible, they understand theology, and they're not just a group of people who, know, know, who understand it in a theoretical level, they're able to teach one another as well. This church is able to teach theology back and forth. They're able to disciple each other in the truth. And this is a very good thing for the Apostle Paul. He's thinking about this and satisfied because of this. Now often, and I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's important to say, 
that we don't want to be a people who know a lot of things about God, but don't know God, like personally know God. And we see that that is an error that people can make and have made down through the history of the church where they have become theologically rigorous like the church at Ephesus. But what we find out in Rome, or what we find out in Revelation is that the church at Ephesus, even though they had right doctrine, solid doctrine, they wouldn't put up with false teaching, they had forgotten their first love. So the error that the church at Ephesus made was they, they could dot every theological I and cross every theological T, but they forgot the basics of loving, we got some dogs that are running and escaping through the neighborhood over there. So if we see some dogs running through the neighborhood, we'll be uh, be cautious and maybe help a neighbor out. Um, the church at Ephesus, they they had you know their heads with right knowledge, but their hearts were not properly loving the God they knew so much about. There was a disconnect there, and so Paul, or excuse me, the, John the Revelator through the Holy Spirit said, "Hey, church at Ephesus, you've forgotten your first love." But there's another error that we can make, and I think happens a lot more often in the Church of America today, where we try to, the Church in America, I think, and often even down in my own heart, I try to love God with my heart more than I love God with my mind. And that is an error in the opposite direction. And what Paul says here is he is thankful because they have right knowledge. They have right knowledge, and they're able to teach each other with that right knowledge. And so it's right to say knowledge of God without knowledge, without actually knowing God is wrong. Trying to know God without knowing about God is equally, and I would even say equally or even possibly more dangerous. I think it's equal or possibly even more dangerous because we have a lot of people that are running around and one of the errors that I want us to, to not fall into is I don't want to love a God of my own imagination and I don't want you to love a God of your imagination. I don't want you to think, well, God feels like and seems like this to me, and I love the God that I think and I feel about. I don't want us to be that kind of people, and Paul doesn't want that for us either. God does not want this. He wants us to know him rightly. And so when Paul thinks about this church, he thinks about a church that knows God and knows about God. Those two things are so crucial. You cannot know or you can know, excuse me, you can know the God of your imagination with bad theology. But you cannot know the God of the Bible with bad theology. You can know the God of your imagination with bad theology. But you cannot know the God of the Bible without biblical theology. You have to know God's Word. And Paul's sitting back and thinking about the church in Rome and he's thinking, you know what? They've got the head knowledge there. They've got the heart knowledge there. They are loving God rightly. And they are theologically solid. And that is a good thing. Theology is not a bad word. It is a very, very good word. It's the study of God. And we want to study God in the scriptures. We don't want to just study him to know about him. We want to study him to know him. We don't want bad theology. We won't be able to know God that way. So Paul is thinking about the church in Rome. And he's thankful and satisfied because they're able to know good theology and teach good theology. It is a good, good thing. And he goes on, he explains it further in verse 15. Look at this. But on some points, I have written you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God given to me. So even though they are sharp and even though he's satisfied with their knowledge of God and their ability to instruct one another, he has written very, very boldly to this church to remind them of some things. Now, a quick note to preachers, to myself, and 
for those who are not pastors, but those who are congregants who listen to regular preaching of the word. Pastors are required, required to be bold. Paul wrote Romans 3 and Romans 9. What are these things that he wrote that he was bold about? Well, can you imagine being, the, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, being the Apostle Paul, and getting to Romans chapter 3, and pinning down Romans chapter 3, about the heart being, about, about uh, people not seeking God, and, and people being in sin, and quoting from Psalm 7 and, 50, and 54, I think, about being evil, and broken, and sinful, and that no one seeks God, no, not one. Could you imagine Paul as he's writing those words, kind of getting in a conversation with God about that and thinking, you know, God, if this letter is going to be warmly received, we don't need to talk about the sinfulness of humanity. Let, let's be a little bit nicer. He could have easily talked back to God. Or when you get to Romans 9, could you imagine getting to Romans 9 and, reading, and, and writing about election, writing about predestination, or writing about the will, writing about the heart and thinking like, God, this, this is going to come across pretty hard here. I would rather not write this. But Paul wrote it because he was obedient to the Holy Spirit. This is what God would have him do. That is bold. He could not, I mean, he could have easily talked back to God and he could have been limp-wristed. He could have been a weak man and he could have said, no, God, I'm not going to write that. That's too hard. I don't like that. It's going to be too controversial. About so many things in the book of Romans. But he was bold to this theologically rich church. He was bold and he wrote bold things to remind them because God's grace was at work through the Apostle Paul. So he spoke strongly. That's what pastoral ministry is, rightly understood. It cannot be done by weak men. It's masculine work. It requires bold reminders. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1-12, through 12, Paul's writing this as well. And he's charging Timothy, and he says this about preaching the word. This is it for me and all preachers of the word, and anybody, again, who's listening to God's word being preached, do not put up with soft preaching. Don't put up with it. Don't put yourself under it, ever. If you ever move from here, or go to a different church, find somewhere who's going to preach the word strong. It's so crucial. Because here's what Paul commissions Timothy to do. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in the teaching. A preacher, Paul, must be, even at one point, he talks about being so kind that he's being like a nursing mother to the church. But at other times, he's bold and saying, rebuke sharply, exhort, reprove, and do this with complete patience. And here, Paul is modeling that by being bold and writing things that must be written because the Holy Spirit is leading him to do so. If you're going to see me, and if you ever see me or anybody at our church, if you ever see me going soft, I want you to remind me to be bold and to reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience in the teaching. That's what Paul models. That's what Paul calls every preacher of the gospel to do. And that's what Paul calls all congregants. Don't accumulate people for yourself who will tickle your ears 
who will give you all the things that you want. You want to be challenged. Every believer should want to be reproved and rebuked and exhorted with complete patience. That's what we want. That's what we need. And so Paul is writing bold reminders to this church, things that they already know, but he wants them to be reminded of. And that's what Christians always need. We need reminders, things that we know to be true, things that we believe already in God's Word, but maybe we've forgotten or maybe we've gotten soft on, and He comes to remind us we need reminders of the truth of the Gospel. Soft words make soft Christians. Bold words make giants. Paul knew this. Every preacher should know it. And I want, I want you to notice in the text what motivates Paul's boldness. What motivates his boldness is the grace of God. God's grace motivates people to be bold, not passive. We need more bold men and women in this world. Men and women who are not scared of anything. And what makes people bold, what makes people grow a backbone, what makes people spiritually strong, what nourishes us and builds us up, is the grace of God. Look at the text. But on some points I have written boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. When God gives us more and more grace, God's grace makes us more and more strong. God's grace does not make weak men and women. It does not make men and women who want to go out and sin all the more. God's grace empowers us and emboldens us to do what needs to be done. God's men are to be preachers of the grace of God. And God's men and women need the grace of God to build us strong. And that's what the Apostle Paul is modeling for us and giving to the church at Rome and giving to us the church in Carbondale today. Grace motivates people toward truth and boldness. Now look at this in verse 16. It's awesome. We get to see a, a real-life case study of this boldness in action. We see the mission that God had called Paul on. God's grace didn't meet Paul and keep him where he was. God's grace so motivated the Apostle Paul that it changed his life forever. And we see the Apostle Paul going into the impossible mission of bringing the gospel of Jesus, not just to the walls of Jerusalem, but bringing the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles. Isn't it like God? I love this. You know, you can take, and it's really popular to take spiritual gift in inventories. That can be a really helpful thing. But... One of the things the people of God need to recover is that God uses us, He uses His sons and daughters in ways His sons and daughters are not gifted to show off His power. The Apostle Paul was the Jew of all Jews, and God sent him to the Gentiles. Wouldn't that have been a better job for somebody else, you would think? Naturally, if, if the Apostle Paul took his gifting inventory, people would have, the, the early church would have said, No, Paul, you're going to the Jews and only the Jews. This is what you grew up in. This is what you know. You know culturally the, the way of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You know how to speak to them. But where does God send Paul? Well, God boldly sends Paul to the Gentiles. And God gave him... A burden for the Gentiles. Look at his mission in verse 16. Because of the grace of God given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable 
sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an interesting passage, and commentators are kind of all over the place, and maybe not all over the place, but there's several different, two or three different primary understandings of this passage. And I think the clearest is is Paul using metaphor because he says the priestly service. What he's, what's he talking about? If we just slowed down and read this verse carefully, kind of circled words, underlined words, did some word studies, we would find some unique things in verse 16. A minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, so not the Jews, and that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It, he offers his priestly services. Priestly services. What in the world is Paul talking about? Okay, let's, uh, let's take metaphor for a second, okay? If we remember back in chapter 12, Paul opens chapter 12 as he switches gears, he gets into the practical, and he calls us to live, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what the Apostle Paul calls us to, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And what he does is he uses imagery from the Old Testament, and he uses it as a metaphor for how the Christian is to live our life. We are not literally to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, going to present ourselves at the temple and sacrificing our physical body. But we are to live self-sacrificial lives, self-denying lives, not self-indulgent lives. It's a metaphor. So he's using this Old Testament imagery as a metaphor to how we are to live our life in the practical day-to-day. -day. Now here in this instance, what I think Paul is doing is he's using this priestly imagery, not referring to himself as a literal priest, but just think through this with me. I think Paul is using this metaphor of priest saying that he is offering up the Gentiles to God in service of the gospel. Keep in mind this boldness. The grace of God given to, given to Paul, leading him and sending him on mission to the Gentiles. Paul offering up the Gentiles, hear God, in service of the gospel. Through the Holy Spirit then, the Gentiles are sanctified and set apart as holy. Okay? So let's tease this out a little bit more. Hang with me. Paul knew his God-assigned task was being a missionary to the Gentiles. And he gladly offered up his mission to the Lord. Here, God, here are the Gentiles. In service to the gospel of Jesus, I am offering up a priestly sacrifice to the Gentiles to you. Here, God, here are the Gentiles. All the work, all the work that's been done to gather in the Gentiles, all the revival that we've seen happen. Here, God, this is my priestly sacrifice to you. I'm presenting them to you. Now, I want us to see an important point. The mission God sent the Apostle Paul on did not have Paul's heart. God did. Okay, here's the deal. When God gives us something to do, okay, we have our lives, the work of our hands in front of us. We have different jobs we're going to. Many of uh, you moms are at home. Your job and your calling is at home. Part-time work, 
men, wherever you're out going to work, if you're retired, whatever it may be, you have work that God has given you to do. You have it at your home right now. You have things to cultivate, things to build, possessions that God has given you. You have a mission in your life to bring glory to God to all that's around you, to shape everything that's around you for the use and the purposes of God and His glory. Okay? You have a mission. Paul had a mission. Here's what so often happens. So often, we think the mission, the possessions, my calling, whatever it may, may be, so often that calling gets a man or a woman's heart and we don't see that the whole point is God having our heart. Now this happens in pastoral ministry. Let me just make it personal to you. Pastoral ministry has a way of grabbing the hearts of pastors. And you, you've heard stories, you've seen stories all, all around of a PK. Most of you know a definition of a, a preacher's kid. And you see this in a bunch of different areas of life where a person's work, their life calling, gets their heart where the person doesn't know the difference between the calling, the work, and themselves. And when those things begin to be pulled away from that man or that woman, whatever it is you're calling it is, whatever it is you love, the work that you love, when that starts to be pulled away from the, from the man, the preacher, when, I, when I'm not the pastor anymore, when I'm not being looked at, when I'm older, when I'm not in pastoral ministry anymore, am I going to be okay? Does God have my heart or does ministry have my heart? Does preaching have my heart or does the one I'm preaching about have my heart? Now you take this principle I'm talking about and apply it to your heart, to your life. What has your heart? The Apostle Paul here models this. The mission that God's grace has launched him on doesn't have his heart. He's offering up to God as a priestly sacrifice. Here, God, my whole mission is yours. This is, this is about you. It doesn't have me. God, you have me. That's why he's so easily able to say, Here, God, the Gentiles, they're yours. My mission to them doesn't have my heart. You have my heart. And I just have to wonder about the work that we have to do, the place that God has assigned to us. Does that place that God has assigned you have your heart? Or does God have your heart? It's a huge question. It's a question about identity. Who are you? Are you your work? Is that your identity? Are you your calling? Is that your identity? Or are you a child of God first? And I think the, the work of every believer is identifying ourselves and understanding ourselves as God's child before I'm anything else. I am God's. I belong to God. Whatever He has me do, it's for His purposes. It's not for mine. I'm not going to find my identity in anything other than being. I am a child of God. And so Paul is able to take this mission. This mission doesn't have his heart. God has his heart. He's able to offer it up as a sacrifice to the Lord, a priestly sacrifice. Here, God, this belongs to you. And I want you to see the freedom in this. The freedom of God being of, of a person being able to offer up their life's calling or their life's mission to God. You're able to offer it up and say, here, God. I want you to see the freedom. Look at verse 17 and 18. Chapter 15, 17 and 18. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Now, verse 17 is going to provide us a question. Verse 18 is going to provide us an answer. Okay? I want you to think about verse 17. 
In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. What in the world is Paul talking about? Proud of my work for God? This sounds weird to come out of the Apostle Paul. He's the one, after all, that says, I'm making my ambition to, to preach Christ, or I, I will not venture to boast of anything except for, for the cross of Christ in Galatian. I will boast only in the cross. But now he's saying, I'll be proud of my work for Christ. I have reason to be proud or take pride in my work for God. It provides us a question. Verse 18 provides us an answer. And I want us to be proud of our work for God. You can't see my facial expressions probably from where you're at, but I just kind of made a, a head-tilting weird face. Proud of our work for God? Doesn't the Proverbs say something about that? About pride and arrogance? After all, Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 18.3, Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Psalm 101.5, Whoever is haughty, look, whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. God literally saying, I do not endure. I can't even put up with, I can't tolerate the proud and arrogant heart. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. God hates pride. Hates it. He absolutely hate, hates pride. It's evil. It's wicked. It's the antithesis of humility. But Paul says, in Christ then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. What in the world is he talking about? What in the world is he talking about? Okay, look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Okay, this is so awesome. And it's going to, I mean, this is going to empower you in your life and in your mission to be able to see the work of God everywhere and be excited about it. Verse 17 provides a question. Verse, eight, verse 18 provides an answer. answer. In Christ, that's key, Paul is proud of his work for God. And as a Christian, Paul is proud of his work. And we should be too, as previously stated. But how is this not pride? How is being pr proud of our work for God not pride? Because in verse 18 we see, he will not venture to boast of anything, anything except for what Christ has done or accomplished through me. He won't venture to talk about anything about the, except the work of Christ through me. Paul did not view, in other words, Paul did not view his work as his independent work. And as he looked at the Gentiles who he had labored among, as he had boldly walked out and proclaimed the word of God to the church of Rome and to any church and to anyone who would listen, he did not view his work as his work. His work was intimately tied. He had this theology working behind the ground, behind in his mind and in his heart. He absolutely knew that anything he did for God was Christ working through him. And what at first seems arrogant and seems prideful, we see is unbelievably humble because he's saying in Christ, everything I do for God, all of my work, no matter what it is, it's not me, it's Christ through me. It's Christ working in me and it's Christ working through me. 
Every single work I do as a believer is not me in isolation doing that work under my own strength, under my own power. It's Christ working through me in everything. Anything that happened among the Gentiles, anybody who heard the gospel and believed in Jesus, they did so not because of me, but because of Christ working through me. And that is true of you, beloved. It's true of everyone here. Every good work you do is not a sign of your independent work for God, but it is an absolute sign that Jesus is working through you. Jesus has not left you alone. In the mind of, in the heart of Paul, there's this connection that's always there. His work is God's work through him. Everything he did in his life was Christ working through him. So here's how it applies to us. Here's how it applies to us, this verse. As we're doing the work God has assigned to us, as we're finding peace and joy in our identity as sons and daughters, as we look at what God is doing through us, be proud of that work. Because it's Christ working through you. Don't be proud of that work independent of Christ. Don't be proud of that work patting yourself on the back. But by the Spirit's power, like Paul, see that all of our life has been, anything that's good that's come through the work of our hands, or the, through the vocal cords and out of our mouth, anything that's come that's been helpful and that's been good has been Christ working through us. This is a principle that's seen in other places in the Bible as well. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have, or excuse me, for this I toil, now, listen to this. Again, Colossians 1.29. For this, this is Paul, for this I toil, I, for this I work. This is Paul saying that I'm working hard, I'm toiling, I'm doing this work. For this I toil. Struggling. It's Paul struggling. But here's what where the verse turns. For this I toil, struggling with all his gods, all his energy, that he powerfully works through me. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Philippians 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not also in my presence, but also in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This principle is everywhere. Christian, be active for the Lord. We are to be on mission for Him. We are His sons and daughters, proclaiming His glory to everyone. But know that when we're doing the work, when we're telling people about Jesus, when we are impressed to simply pray for somebody, that is is supernatural life flowing through your veins. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And we should be so proud that our big brother Jesus is doing this work through us. We are not proud of ourselves. We are proud of the work of Jesus in us and through, the, and through us. Now look at the mighty work that God did through the Apostle Paul, this work that he is proud of, the work of Christ in the Gentiles. Look at verse 18. 
For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By word and deed. Verse 19. And by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that in Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, all the way around, all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Alright, listen to how powerful this is. The work of Christ through Paul was so powerful, Christ working and accomplishing things through, through Paul, that pagan Gentiles were brought to obedience in word and deed. Pagan Gentiles who, who believed crazy things. I'm reading an amazing book right now. I think Becky Manili, Jordan said that Becky loved this book. Uh, it's called, it's by Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And her testimony is just, it, it's amazing. She was a, she was a, a homosexual woman, lib, feminist, liberal, professor. Like all the categories of people you would think, well, that's kind of the kind of person I, I, I would struggle to be around. Um, and I mean just differing views she hated Christians was actually working on a book about why the Christian belief in the scriptures is foolish when a pastor and wife befriended her and invited her to come over to their house every Sunday night for dinner and she thought well I'm writing a book about how silly Christians are I might as well start going over and and just really getting to know them to realize, and she went over, it was like a case study where she was going to go over and spend time and, and see how foolish these Christians were. Well, slowly, this pastor and his wife loved her and began to tell her about the gospel of Jesus. And believe it or not, by the grace of God, because this her lifestyle, I realize, is no different than is the same as somebody who grew up in church their entire life but rejected God. The gospel bust into both of those people's souls and the gospel of Jesus busted into Rosaria Butterfield's soul and she became a Christian she repented of her sins and she trusted in Christ she left her lifestyle and now she's writing about she's now married has children inviting other people into her home the gospel came with power and this is the kind of thing that Paul got to see in the Gentiles the Gentiles were converted in word and deed in their theology and their actions they left an old paganistic lifestyle they turned to Jesus, they trusted in the Bible, they started obeying God, and Paul got to see all of it. It was a miracle. How do these pagan nations turn from their wicked ways and trust in Jesus? Well, through the proclamation of the gospel. Paul humbly went out and saw Christ work through him. And he got to witness powerful and explosive conversions. People you would never think to meet Jesus. And here they met Jesus. And it happened through signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. Now, you look in verse 19 by the power of signs and wonders. And I want to pause and just say a few things about signs and wonders for us this morning. I think we need to understand the categories of biblical miracles. You know, there is a sense in which we see a miracle every day. When we see a baby born, that's a miracle. It's truly a miracle. When we have breath in our lungs and when we breathe in and when we Exhale, exhale, that's a miracle. But that's not the kind of miracles we're talking about with signs and wonders, okay? That dogwood tree, that's a miracle, look at that. If you've never, if you've never had a longing for the aesthetic, 
look at that tree and in just a little bit you'll realize my goodness that's beautiful God has made a beautiful world it's amazing and even in a fallen world God get, lets us to experience dogwood trees it's just astounding and we see that we think my goodness that's miraculous but when everything's a miracle, if we see miracles all around us, it's true, there are miracles. But when everything's a miracle, in a sense, nothing is a miracle. In a sense. But these signs and wonders that Paul is referring to are the types of miracles we see in the Old Testament. They're like next level miracles, next level signs and wonders. Like we see in the book of Acts, like we see in the Gospels, like we see in the Old Testament with Moses and Elijah and Elisha. These are miracles that were done in their midst that were un unmistakable. They were unbelievable mir miracles that came to authenticate the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And within the Gentiles, there were these miracles that were just next level, instantaneous, right now, not over a, a period of time. It was the blind see, the lame walk, they stand up and it's actually happening right in front of their eyes. And the Gentiles saw this, and the message that the apostles and the early church was proclaiming was authenticated before their eyes. They saw it with their own eyes, and they were repenting of Jesus and trusting in Christ. And all of this was being done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it happened through Jerusalem and all the way in Elicrum. And Paul was confident even through all this, through the gospel coming to all the Gentiles, or coming to the Gentiles, he was accomplished, he was confident even that he was fulfilling the ministry that God had given him. Look at verse 19 again. By powers of signs and wonders through the power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem to Lycrim, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Through God's grace, Paul fulfilled the ministry that God had given him. And I want you to see, even though Paul is now older when he's writing the book of Romans, even though he's a wise old Pastor Paul, I want you to see that he still has fire in his bones. And here's what the older we get, here's what I want us to see. I, I want to see, and if you're on the, you know, if you're a little bit older, man, and I'm, I'm so thankful we have passionate people that are all age of this church. We don't have a lot of docile Christians in our church, which I'm excited, that makes me so happy. But as we get older, I want us to emulate, I hope we do, the fire that's in Paul's belly for the gospel of Jesus. I want you to see in 20 and 21 that there's still, even though he's fulfilled the ministry that God has given him, he knows that he's not done yet. And as long as you have breath in your lungs, no matter how old you are, if you're 99 years old, if you're 110 years old, if you have life in your lungs, if you have breath in your lungs and blood in your body, God is not done with you. And you still have mission. You still have work to do. Christ is still working through you. There's never a point in our life where Jesus says, okay, I'm done working through you. If you're on this earth, God has purpose for you being on this earth. Look at verse 20. And around Iconium, or at Elicrum, I fulfill the ministry that got the, of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told will see. Never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Paul's passion didn't wane. He still burned. He was still on fire for Jesus. 
his desire was to preach the gospel. We're going to see next week that he's writing this letter because he wants to be funded to go to Spain. He really wants to get to Spain. And if he's going to get there to preach the gospel where Christ has not yet been named, he's going to need the church at Rome to fork over a bunch of cash and resources to get him there. And he's going to ask for that. He, he has a passion to preach where Christ has not been named. There are people that need to hear, I must go. That's the heart of the apostle. I got to go. His evangelistic zeal never left him, ever. Now, one of the first sermons, we were in Romans chapter 1, I preached uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 15, and I said that, uh, I, I think it was actually in the first sermon of Romans, that we have to keep in mind that Paul said that he is eager to preach the gospel to the church in Rome as well. Okay, Romans 1, 15, Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome as well. Paul wanted to preach the gospel to Christians. And, and for the pastor, for pastors, people who aren't evangelists or big A apostles, because those are gone now, those who have the gifting of going and planting churches and traveling and evangelism and missionary work, they're going to be traveling a lot. But most pastors and most Christians, God is going to place in a single place for a very long time. Most likely, you're going to be in the same city you're in for a very long time. Maybe not the same house. Some of you will move. But for, for majority of your life, God is going to have you in a place for a long period of time. And that's how it is for most pastors. And for most pastors, they're going to be preaching the gospel to one group of people for a very long time. But here's Paul's ambition. For him, he, he wanted to preach the gospel where nobody had heard. And I have to wonder, and I want to preach the gospel too, by the way, to people who have never heard. But I have to wonder, are there anybody, is there anybody here, and, and you know, there are still people groups throughout this world who have never heard the gospel. Like there's, there is no indigenous group there of believers to raise up church planters and send out pastors and evangelists in that indigenous group because there's no Christians there. And I have to wonder if anybody here, and you're listening to your car right now, if that's your ambition. I just heard a story from Jordan yesterday. Francis Schaefer and his wife Edith heard that liberalism had swept through Switzerland like the 60s and 70s and they heard that the gospel presence had been pushed out of that country and so they just moved there they just moved there and they planted their lives there and lived there to tell people about Jesus you know maybe you you know there's people that don't know the gospel maybe you maybe God's calling you to be like the apostle Paul and get to Spain maybe it's not Spain maybe it's an indigenous group in the middle of Brazil or Central America Maybe God's calling you, and our church is going to fund you to go there. But Paul had this great ambition. And even though he was older, and wise old Pastor Paul, he's wanting to get to Spain. There's fire in his belly. He wanted to preach the gospel to non-Christians. And he did this with confidence of God's very word. Paul's confidence for the mission of God going forward was in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament promises and prophecies. He quotes from Isaiah a verse, those who have never been told of him will see. There's Paul's confidence. I'm going to go to Rome, just like when he was in the book of Acts, in, in Acts, Acts chapter 18. The, in Corinth, he says that there's a, now there's a bee flying above me right now. If I swat it here in a second, there it goes. It's flying. Okay, I might be hitting a carpenter bee here in a second. But anyways, in, in Acts chapter 18, Paul says there are many people in this city 
who are called by my name, but they don't know it yet. And so Paul stayed a year and a half. There were people that were going to come to Jesus in the city of Corinth that didn't know that yet. But Paul's confidence was, was that he knows there are people. God told him there are people here in this city. And I want you to stay here and I want you to preach the gospel and know for certain that they're going to be people who meet Jesus. His same confidence as he desires to get to Rome, or desires to get to Spain, his confidence is that God has said this. God said that those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Those who have never heard before, never seen before, when the Holy Spirit empowers people to go, they're going to believe in the gospel of Jesus. That's his confidence, and it remains our confidence today. In this city and in places around the world who have not heard, we are confident because God has told us. Just like I said last week, God's told us. Jesus has ransomed a people for God from every tribe, tongue, language, and people. We know for certain the mission will not fail. And that was Paul's confidence. Now, Here's some things we have to decipher for us today. Paul is getting personal for us. In this passage today, this whole text is, he is opening up his personal life. I fulfilled this mission. And so how does his personal mission to the Gentiles apply to us? When Paul gets personal, how does it personally apply to us? Because after all, we're not the apostle. We're not Paul. We're not sent on the same mission that Paul is sent on in the same exact way. Most of us are not pastors. Most of us are not gifted with evangelism, even though we are commissioned to be evangelistic. Most of us are in one location and not traveling the world. Most of us are not trying to get to Spain. So how do we take Paul opening up personally and telling us his internal world, how do we make that applicable to us personally? And I think there's four things that we can be challenged with this morning before we sing. Number one. Paul walked in bold confidence in the Word of God. He wrote reminders through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Rome, and he was confident that that bold word would, would do its work in Rome. And I think we should, by God's grace, model bold confidence in the Word of God. Bold confidence. Whatever God says, I believe it. I'm not going to blink. I'm not going to flinch. I believe what God says. This book is about God. And it is who He said He is who He says He is. And He can do what He says He can do. Second thing I think we can take away is Paul is opening up his, pers his personal life. How does it apply to us? We can, like Paul, be on mission to the place and the people God has assigned to us. Well, who, who is that, you ask? Who is your Gentiles? Paul was sent to the Gentiles. Who am I sent to? Well, first, I'm sent to my family. I have two little boys in our household. My family. That's who God has sent me, to Jordan and I. That's my mission field. Who's living in your house? That's your mission field. That's your Gentiles. And then after your house, who do you work with? Who are you around? That's your mission. And I think we can model, like the Apostle Paul, being on mission to the place and the people God has assigned to us. Number three. I want us to see the work of God through us. Find joy in the fact that God has worked through you. 
if you're able to look at your life and see a growing, an area that's growing in your life, you don't have to feel bad about that. You can thank God for that. You know, it, it, it's hard sometimes when you think about the fact that God hates pride. He hates pride in and of ourselves. But when we are proud of our big brother Jesus, that's a really good thing. And when you see his work in your life and in others' lives, we should be excited to know that God is working through us. Find joy in that. God is using you on his mission. Find joy in that. You are his son and daughter, and we can be happy and proud of Jesus. Jesus, thank you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so thankful for you that you would invite me into this work and then let me push with my hands and work with my hands and preach with my mouth and love with my, tell people the good news. Thank you that I get to do that. I think we should be excited about God working through us. Number four, fourth takeaway, and I'm sure that the Holy Spirit is giving you other takeaways as well. I, I want us, like the Apostle Paul, to never lose fire in our belly. Fight to stay passionate about Jesus and His mission. Never lose passion. You've heard me say this before, but people have always recognized a passion in me, and they've commented about it. And if you're kind of a hyperactive person, I, I know that's surprising for you to find out that I'm somewhat hyper, hyperactive. But don't confuse hyperactivity with passion, okay? True passion for the Lord isn't simply hyperactivity. We don't just want to be hyper for God. We want to be passionate and on fire for Jesus. And I remember early on in the faith when I'd be really excited and I wouldn't know how to bridle my excitement. It would come across as brash or harsh. And it was arrogant. I was a young believer. And it came across as arrogant and I hurt people with it, with, with passion. I remember people trying to counsel me and they would come along and say, and say, hey, listen, that passion will fade. Eventually you'll realize how bored all of us are as well and you'll get in line, <laughs> basically. But here's the deal. I want you to be passionate about Jesus. I don't want you just to know right theology. I want you to know right theology. If you're on the other side of this, and if you're just, I, I don't want you to be as all fired up, yeah, yeah, right. I'll be more indignified than this, and, and really excited, and rah, 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 but know nothing about God. That's foolishness. Or say silly things like, wow, well, theology doesn't matter. If you want to know God, it does. If you want to walk with God, it does. But I also don't want a group of people, and I don't want us to be like the church at Ephesus. I'm pleading with you. I don't want to be a man that's like a pastor in Ephesus who can give you all the right answers and can get, who knows catechisms and who knows systematic theologies and who doesn't put up with false teaching. I don't want to be able just to identify false teaching. I don't want to lose my first love. And friends, I want to challenge you to love Jesus, to fan that into flame in your soul. Be in His Word. Commune with Him. Don't lose the fire that's in your belly. We see this in Paul. I make it my ambition to preach where Christ has not been named. And so I want to ask you, as Paul opens up and it gets personal, how does that personally apply to you? What is the Holy Spirit doing in your life, in your world? 
What are some things you need to thank God for, to recognize God did that. He's working through me, and I'm excited that He's working through me. What do I need to repent of, or what do I need to take more seriously when it comes to the mission that God has given me? Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit.